we often talk about new technology as being, you know, fantastic and all good and we want to be optimistic and look to the upside. But as we build up entirely new technological infrastructure, such as self-driving vehicles or the Internet of Things, or we start to use artificial intelligence in almost every part of, of the, the digital world around us, what's the possibility that we're overlooking potential for inequality? And some of that might be by forcing people out of work. It might be by changing the, the conditions that they've planned and invested for over the years. Or it might be direct discrimination. It might be that these systems actually either deliberately or inadvertently exclude large numbers of people from what we hope that they will deliver. Hi, I'm Shane Anderson. I'm Jake Morecambe. Today we're taking a break from your usual Think Sustainability or Think Digital Futures episode. And instead, you'll hear two conversations, both looking at how artificial intelligence could lead to greater income inequality, and how inequality is not just a social concern, but an economic and environmental disruption. We're heading into the territory of the robots taking our jobs debate. But it's not quite as simple as rocking up to work one day and finding a big hunk of machinery where your desk used to be. Tasks are slowly becoming more automated. Things develop unevenly in some areas, industries shift rather than do about turns. And sometimes we even automate things and then realise it's better if humans do this. And of course, when we're looking at things on this big global scale, there's a huge chunk of the world that doesn't have a job to be automated in the first place. So we still have these challenges of poverty and parts of society falling behind. So I spoke to Nick Davis about this. He's head of society and innovation at the World Economic Forum, which is in Geneva, Switzerland. A big part of his research is looking at some of the implications of what's being called the Fourth Industrial Revolution, a term his organisation actually coined. The Fourth Industrial Revolution is is just a metaphor for talking about the kind of changes that are happening. And you know, often we use language very deliberately. And in, in this case, when, when Professor Schwab and, and I first started talking about this concept, the goal was to um, impress upon people of the academic community, but also uh, policymakers, business leaders and civil society, the fact that the of technologies that we see around us at the moment that are emerging are having as big a shift in economic structures, in society, the way we relate to one another, as indeed the first industrial revolution, looking back to around between 1750 and 1850. And that was a time when uh, there was a, a huge shift in, in where people lived and, and what they did. And since then, there have been a number of different industrial revolutions. So we're, we're kind of looking forward at what this latest set of technologies heralds for the way we create, exchange and distribute value. What are the key characteristics then, I guess, of this revolution we're in now? I think you could say that like like all revolutions, a key characteristic is a lot of uncertainty and change. And, you know, as new ideas come about and people start to apply them, it, it obviously disrupts the existing ways of, of, of working. And we see that really clearly in the fact that a lot of industries are in turmoil at the moment. We're, we're you know, economists, you know, and, and we, I do work at the World Economic Forum. We're very worried about productivity levels and we, we're finding them hard to measure, which is also an indication that, that the tools we're using to measure our traditional uh, forms of output and, and growth may not be suited to the type of technologies and ways of working 
that are that are emerging out of this. So in addition to uncertainty, we see kind of you know new paradigms and different ways of actually looking at what is output, what is growth, what 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 are relationships between people and what they mean. So that's kind of a second big effect. And I guess third and, and probably more specific to this industrial revolution is because it's building really on what we think of as the third industrial revolution, it's the digital revolution. It's building on a set of global communication, information processing and storage networks, the digital world, that are really kind of reaching and, and empowering this at a, at a pretty much an exponential rate. So the speed of change is, is greater. The reach of the change uh, geographically and, and to different stakeholders is also uh, significantly greater than previous industrial revolutions. Some of your research has been looking into the relationship between this change of automation in the workplace and rising inequality. Could you talk me through what first got you interested in this line of inquiry? I think most interestingly, you know, when you look at the history of industrial revolutions, the majority of people have actually missed out from their benefits. So if you look at the world today, we, we have about 2 billion people uh, around the world who still lack access to clean water and sanitation. And we take that for granted, I guess, in Australia and other parts of the world. But clean water and sanitation was like it was a technological and systems breakthrough that, that, that occurred during what we would think of as the second industrial revolution you know, from the mid to the end of the 19th century. So um, we still have more than a billion people without access to electricity, which is also a key technology of, of about the same period, the second industrial revolution. And there are 600 million smallholder farmers around the world who, who haven't even been touched by any kind of mechanization and use of fossil fuels or artificial fertilizer in their lives. So... They're almost in that, that pre-industrial revolution state. And that means that they are living lives that are shorter, poorer, less connected. The measures of quality of life that we would use indicate that, that they're not as well off as they, they could be. On the other hand, we know that the, the industrial revolutions we've seen have also created uh, massive externalities. So the most obvious of them are related to the environment. But we've, we've also created big social externalities. And, and perhaps another quick example from history is the use of child labor. That was a big feature of the first industrial revolution as as factories and the factory models started to grow up externality was of course young children being used in ways that we wouldn't think of as appropriate today and in, indeed the first labor laws the first unions and support around uh, workers rights started around 1800 810 uh, and didn't really um, have the full force and didn't and get going until the middle of that century but that was a d- direct reaction to some of the the, the factors and inequality-related factors in terms of who gets to benefit, who pays the costs as, as things change rapidly and, and as the ways that we, we create and manufacture and distribute trade and, and work together changes. And what does this look like in, in Australia? I mean, can we measure the impact of technology on inequality in Australia just yet? We're having trouble measuring lots of things at the moment, to be honest. Most of the measurement and the the work we're doing to think of, say, the impact on the labor force of new technologies relies on us having data from, you know, a a good few years uh, in a number of different locations on the impact of of those technologies. And to be honest, the traditional forms of research in terms of following official statistics, doing surveys and and going deep on these things that we would use in economics and social science, we, we haven't done them on many of the new technologies uh, mostly because they're they're pretty new. So that the first thing to say is no, partly because we we don't have the data, and perhaps the data that we do have isn't appropriate. We need more detailed and regular census type data uh, or household survey data to do that. But I will say the approach of 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 new groups, new research groups, new consulting groups, uh, and all of those things are showing that uh, it's probably not as dire a problem 
as some of the headlines suggest, about half of all jobs disappearing in the next 10 years. Uh, or if it is as dire as half of all jobs disappearing, the one, one of the things that could give us reassurance is that the rate of change at the moment uh, doesn't seem to be significantly higher compared to previous uh, eras. It seems that we're, we're probably still able to cope at the moment. And secondly, that a lot of the changes that Australians have experienced in the last 15 years, particularly in the workforce, have actually been net positive. Uh, and we really probably probably need to care more about those that are specifically left out or excluded or lose their jobs and, and less worried for the average Australian whose skills will have to change, but whose job won't disappear uh, overnight. Yeah, I mean, who are the workers most likely to be replaced by automation? The, the kind of the famous framework that kind of emerged on, on this topic in the early 2000s is by David Autour from MIT. Uh, and that really looks at, you can imagine a, a two by two where, it, where you've either got kind of manual work or cognitive work on one axis and the other you've either got repetitive work or you've got uh, relatively flexible, changing, less predictive work day to day. And you could probably put your own job category in there. What, what David Otoz modeling said was the more you're in the manual and repetitive work, that's where automation has traditionally cut out jobs. So in factory work, in agriculture, it's the manual repetitive work that disappeared and created huge productivity gains, but shifted 30% of, of Australian workforce worked in farms in, in 1900 down to the kind of 2% that we see today. On the other hand, we're seeing with new technologies and, and since Auteur's work in the early 2000s, there's increasing evidence that actually repetitive work that is still cognitive, that is still analysis, what we would think of as, as requires a human being to, to analyze that is also looking in danger. The classic example that everyone uses is uh, radiology and the, the analysis of, of x-rays where computers can do a better job than, than, than a specialist today. Um, and in fact, since 2015, image recognition algorithms are beating humans. And that's where I think people are getting really nervous today. I guess one of the lines that you hear in regards to job loss through automation is that you know, machines will replace jobs and then allow humans to develop more skills to do more technical jobs and to kind of like think at a higher level almost. But you're saying this isn't necessarily the case. I mean, radiology is a very skilled profession. So interestingly, we are seeing that where there were specific specializations that focused on one single task, that is where, you know, if you're in one of those occupations, not repetitive as it were, but you're doing a, a similar thing in a similar way every day, if that is subject to advanced data analysis, that means that your occupation, because it's focused on, on kind of one specific task or one set of tasks that, that, that could, perhaps could be automated, that's where I think you're in the category of, of what some analysis would show is about 5% of occupations that either with current technology or relatively soon could be completely automated and that 5% of occupations is where, yeah, yeah, like over the, the next period of time, you should think about reskilling uh, and we should think about policies from government and, and the business sector to support workers in those jobs. But I have to say, uh, most jobs are not like that. Most jobs today, uh, we were a very service-driven economy in Australia. Most jobs have a wide variety of tasks every day, whether it's you know running a podcast or doing different types of analysis or even answering phones and being in, in, in an office environment. Uh, working as a, as a laborer or electrician, you're doing multiple tasks every day. You're, you're reacting to the context. You're interacting with people. And so the analysis shows that actually it's tasks that disappear much more than jobs. What we're seeing is about 30% of tasks in, in, in the average job, about a third of what you do uh, can be automated. 
Uh, we do see, however, the history in Australia, and this is Australian research, is that people gain from, from that shift. So we've gained two hours uh, a week in Australia of more creative, more interpersonal and more work on, on, on looking at information in a human sense. And we've pushed away a lot of the repetitive mundane work um, over that, that period. That means higher wages and it means a, a higher quality of life. How does that relate then to inequality? I mean, does automation necessarily mean that there's going to be more inequality in a country? The inequality question in the sense of the workforce impact then comes down to who is affected and and how and whether we care about them. So if in that 5% of jobs turns out to be a group of people who are already uh, earning low wages, uh, who have uh, less ability to retrain, um, who have fewer assets, less capital to be able to weather uh, a major shift. And, and let's be honest, our education system around the world, but also in Australia, is not set up to retrain a um, you know, a 40-year-old like me or a 60-year-old that, that, that loses their job. The inequality comes in because when you shift to those new jobs, uh, generally you earn less and you have fewer, fewer benefits that are associated with those jobs. So if that's the case, you do create inequality because the people that are affected are less resilient, take a bigger shock, and, and may indeed not find the next job or the next rewarding work at the same level. And we have to really think hard about how we kind of systematically care for people in that category rather than just looking at the data from the kind of economy-wide and thinking, well, on average, Australians are better off. We seem to be almost playing catch-up, like that these technologies are coming out and we're kind of rushing along behind it to figure out what the implications of it are going to be and what effect it's going to have. Do you think it's a problem that the technology is being implemented faster than we can develop things like government policy frameworks to mitigate any negative effects that it could have? I don't think it's a problem that the technology is being implemented faster in, in most cases. I, I think that that's just the way it's always happened. What I think is a problem is when we don't invest anywhere near as much in the innovation of governance, on the innovation on the policy side, that we need to actually at least have some semblance of catch up or staying at or at least not increasing the gap that, that runs behind. It, it took about 70 or 60 odd years in the US between the kind of the, the, the invention of the automobile and the use of the automobile on public roads and then very common sense legislation around product liability, around seatbelts and safety. There were some ridiculous laws right at the beginning, like the man having to walk with a uh, person having to walk with a red flag in front of any motor car that went down a public road as a safety precaution, which was applied in a number of states in the US. And that soon disappeared and you got a massive spike in, in road deaths, which I think peaked around 60 or 70,000 people at one stage in, uh, per year in, in, in the US. It took a long time for, that, for the legislation and for regulation to catch up. We don't want to make that same mistake with much more powerful technologies such as artificial intelligence and biotechnology. And in order to avoid that mistake, it's not about worrying about whether or not companies are moving too fast. I think it's a really around accelerating the way that we, we work in the public sector and the way that we partner between businesses, governments and uh, civil society, social movements to, to, to get better and faster outcomes here. And I, I've seen really promising moves in that regard, but it does require a shift in thinking of government from being people that kind of clean up the mess or, or wait until problems emerge to being partners in, in kind of almost co-developing how these technologies get implemented uh, across society. How do we then take steps to mitigate things like algorithms being encoded with bias and discrimination? Like take the Centrelink RoboDebt scandal, for example. How do we mitigate against things like that? 
So the interesting thing about algorithms is that the algorithm itself is less important than the data that it's used to train on. So people people often think that well, it's actually a, it's a really smart it's the smart mathematics of the algorithm that's the proprietary bit. That's the you know so in other words, it was the algorithm that was the problem. People might argue that the algorithm, the way that that data was was manipulated or, or interpreted, was the problem in the Centrelink scandal. Actually, it was the data that was really the problem, and the way that it was implemented with multiple different data sets that resulted in. You know, a lot of letters being sent to wrong addresses, etc. And people missed out. Combined with a system that put the burden of response on on people that were least able to to handle that. You know, demanding you know five years worth of records of employment and, and pay records, etc. To to avoid losing losing benefits. We see this a lot around the world with the public use of of algorithms, where it's a combination of lack of clarity on what data is being used to train the algorithm. So therefore, unknown bias and and almost untestable bias until you see the bad stuff emerging. That's one problem, and then a series of assumptions and systems that are set up, many of which you could argue are political more than anything else, which don't take into account, you know, how uh, humans are and what they really need, particularly vulnerable populations. So I think the solution here, a big solution, is not necessarily to say to all companies you must publish openly your the algorithm that you've spent years developing in order to to use it in in a public context or or even in a commercial context, but I do think that there's a big argument to say that. We can create in Australia a series of open, known bias, not not unbiased, because no data set is unbiased, but known bias data sets. And if you are looking to create an algorithm that will serve the Australian people through, you know, our welfare system or through our health system, etc., you need to run your algorithm and reveal the results of that on our open data set. And by seeing what the results are and who gets excluded and what the impacts are, we can we can have an, a much better idea about how reliable that is, about who else we might need to care for. What risks we can manage for, etc., and I think those kind of approaches, rather than saying no algorithms, which is crazy, we, we, we use algorithms, you know, in our daily life, uh, we uh, we have for, for, for centuries in, in many ways. But these particularly smart ones that are a little bit harder to interpret, that that feel a little bit more like magic to many people, we need new ways of making sure that those are, are testable and understandable. And, and these are conversations that are, I'm really excited are happening around the world. It's a question of how do we spend more time talking about this and how do we get much smarter people than me in this conversation to devise uh, really cool solutions that, that work for everyone? That was Nick Davis, Head of Society and Innovation at the World Economic Forum. Up next, why international policy for artificial intelligence is futile and how those developing the technology are further enforcing income inequality. Welcome back to the show. This episode, we are combining Think Sustainability and Think Digital Futures to talk about automating inequality. Now, one of the things I found really interesting about my chat with Nick is this idea that, yes, there are definitely going to be people left behind by automation, people who struggle to retrain, people who can't find a job. But at the same time, there's almost this sense of we just rely on corporations to want to fix this problem themselves. I think it raises some really interesting questions about policy and regulation, where and how we can lay down some ground rules aimed at ensuring automation doesn't make some already pretty bad inequality worse. And these are some pretty big overarching questions of what would these policies even look like, where would they come from, and also how strictly would they be enforced? And when you are dealing with these huge transnational tech giants, 
Is outside regulation even possible? Nick Dawson is a PhD student from the Faculty of Engineering and Information Technology at the University of Technology, Sydney, and he's recently back from a stint at the UN looking at policy frameworks for AI. I spoke with Nick about the power brokers behind artificial intelligence, and ultimately why international organizations like the United Nations are failing to implement global AI policy. Who is developing artificial intelligence? So, I mean, it's disproportionately developed by the private companies at the moment. So uh, Google, Google DeepMind, Facebook, they're sort of attributed to the lion's share of AI development at the moment. There is AI development occurring at the university level, but the problem is that there's this talent drain that's occurring because as a machine learning engineer, you can get paid half a million dollars by Facebook to go and improve their recommender system. So, like, who wouldn't take that deal? Take that over, like, a research position. Yeah, yeah. Majority is happening at a small handful, literally a handful of of private companies. And then knowing that most of the progress is being made on behalf of some of these, like, big international conglomerates, Mm -hmm. then to insert this idea of income inequality, how how is it playing out in this space that AI is potentially Mm. exacerbating this inequality? So the evidence is sort of pointing to that lower skilled and medium skilled workers have a greater susceptibility to automation. What that means is if those jobs are automated and projections at the moment are sort of between 9 to 47%, so it's sort of fraught with uncertainty at the moment. But let's just say some range between those two figures is likely. The question is, where do those people find their next job? Do they upskill? and retrain and find a job and transition quickly back into the labour market? Or do they move down the skill curve and hollow out the labour market and essentially drive wages down and increase the pool of low-skilled workers? That's the real concern at the moment. Because if you have that, then you have a concentrated labour market at either end of the spectrum. You've got a lot of low-skilled workers all sort of vying for the same sort of jobs. And to a degree, we're starting to see that with the gig economy at the moment. So think Uber driving, Deliveroo. And then we've got a more concentrated end of, of the really high-skilled jobs of you know, machine learning engineer, virtual reality designer at the other end who command huge wage premiums. And in the midst of kind of scrapping of this middle ground here by moving those lower-skilled workers, in inverted commas, down that line, mm-hmm. it's pushing them into, I guess acquiring lower wages and those on the other end into making more money, Yeah, therefore an inequity. Yeah. So the reason I say income inequality and not just economic inequality, because there's two main characteristics of economic inequality, there's income and wealth, but the majority of low-skilled workers and low-income earners, they disproportionately rely on income as their economic resources, as opposed to higher ends of the economic spectrum, not only do they command higher wages, but they also rely on the economic resources generated from their wealth. So think investments and property, etc. With AI potentially exacerbating this problem, why is it such a problem? Mm. Why is income inequality something of such dire consequence? So social cohesion is a really important characteristic of modern societies. And there's a positive correlation between rising levels of income inequality and violent crime. 
it is plausible to think that if we have rising levels of income inequality, social fragmentation could occur. Do we want to pursue this new technology if it creates a more unequal society? My answer is no. That said, though, we do want to pursue AI, but we want to ensure that we have the social institutions to make sure that the benefits are equitably distributed. You mentioned social fragmentation, but then also, I guess, in parallel to that could potentially be environmental fragmentation. It's been shown in pockets of research that if you have greater income or economic inequality in particular developed countries, that inequality leads to examples of higher levels of pollution as opposed to more equal country counterparts. Mm. It has trickling ramifications, not just in terms of social cohesion, but that in the wellness of environmental well-being. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that makes that makes sense. And it's just like, I don't, I certainly don't disagree. Equally, though, I think that in terms of some of our biggest concerns and our environmental concerns are some of our biggest, AI offers avenues to really see the sorts of advancements that we need to see over the next couple of decades. And that's why I'm such a big advocate of we need to pursue this technology and we need to nurture its growth, but we just can't do that in a way that creates a more unequal society. Do policymakers understand AI? Uh, So institutional competence is a really, really big problem. So the gap of knowledge between those developing AI and the public institutions that are sort of constructing the markets for which it operates is enormous. We're sort of seeing that consistently at the moment and regulators are, are, are really lagging in trying to understand, firstly, how AI works, let alone its implications. I'm a big advocate of public institutions sort of gaining in-house knowledge. And when you, what public institutions are you referring to? Everything from things like the Productivity Commission, government's research and development uh, arms, so CSIRO. There are certainly publicly funded people doing great work in that area, but to compare the research and knowledge to the private companies and what they're generating, it is it is enormous, like it's light and day. When it comes to some of these big international conglomerates we're referring to and this talent pool of people who are working in that area, hmm. where are they coming from? Ultimately, you would imagine that they go through some sort of like public institution through yep. a university and acquire that knowledge and skill set and then I guess they're headhunted or scouted by some yeah. big conglomerate. But if we're kind of looking at placing these people into this more institution environment, did they not kind of come from those areas in the first place? Yeah, but then it's just market economy. So people uh, receive training at university, majority of whom uh, do receive a you know computer science degree or an engineering degree, um, and then they go and work at one of these corporations if they're talented enough. So, but I, I feel like that's just a constant thing. You know, it's like people that study economics and finance, majority of whom go and work in the private sector as opposed to going to work Treasury or the RBA. And in terms of getting in-house, I guess, I don't know, what does that in-house yeah, this dialogue is... conversation look like? What, what, what's actually happening? Having people employed in these sectors? Yeah. It, so this is, this is one of the biggest issues, I, I think, because you have public institutions that can't really compete on, on salary terms. So what is it that they can provide? Part of it is almost this altruistic 
vision that you can work on some of the biggest problems that face society. And, and people are certainly motivated by that. I'm, I'm definitely one of them. The other thing, is it possible to create a transition into public, like a smooth transition between public institutions and, and the private sector? And so there's been a couple of case studies of that occurring. So the Obama administration, for instance, they created a program that really made it very easy for people to go and do a secondment for two years. And so they might go and work at the NSA or, you know, whatever it is, NASA. Um, so they would kind of like hand pick these extremely talented engineers from Google and then sort of plant them in government departments to work on really tough problems. Um, and that, by all measures, sort of looks like it's been a very successful program. However, it's quite small in scale. So how to create the incentives to draw people to these public institutions is a big problem. And without these people in these institutions with the skill set or the knowledge as to how this technology could potentially inform policy, with the absence of those people, are these bodies kind of just making up this policy being like, oh, we think AI is going to affect this part of society in a particular way? Are they actually writing in policy currently? I think it's safe to say that they're broadly in a consultation phase. So, I mean, earlier this month, I went to a conference um, on the impact of AI on human rights. And, you know, there's a discussion paper out at the moment for people to respond to. So that's kind of indicative of uh, particularly where Australia's at in terms of this is just consultation with outside experts and just the broader sort of research community. So policy itself being written, like, hasn't really advanced too far at all. Um, there are emerging policies around autonomous vehicles over in the States. But again, the diffusion of autonomous vehicles is still very low. Um, and so any policy, it's kind of, they're implemented at a pilot level. It's not widespread national policy. Is it just a case of the policy inevitably has to follow once the technology has been implemented? Yeah, I think so. Is that secure enough for us to do? I mean, then it just depends on the issue that you're talking about. If you're talking about something like lethal autonomous weapons, not. But if you're talking about autonomous vehicles, it sort of depends on a level of diffusion to have occurred in order for it to justify these like broad scale policy measures. If we're jumping back to a domestic setting, and in particular looking at some of the work that you're doing when it comes to Australian labour market programs, mm -hmm. before we kind of jump in, can you just give me a little bit more of a background as to what this project is and, and exactly what you're unpacking? Mm. All advanced economies provide what's called labour market programs, which assist displaced workers uh, to re-enter and transition back into the labour market. By the way, there's a whole heap of them. So there's not just like one active market. There's like, you know, ones that are dedicated for transportation, ones for agriculture and manufacturing and so on. And so my research is looking at if these automation projections are to be fulfilled. Well, firstly, you know, what's the economic impact of that by 2030? So I have to do some economic modelling around that. Um, and then secondly, um, how well placed are the current programs to meet the future demands of AI? And what are those new demands? And then if it is sufficiently different, what are the best measures to adjust these programs in order to assist workers? Are these programs ready? Or like if you're looking to how you will assess whether they're ready or not. Yeah, yeah. What is that process? Yeah, so I'm. Um, that's going to be a process of just a comparative analysis between particularly OECD countries. So there's a group of advanced countries across the world 
all of which have different labour market policies. Um, and some certainly work better than others. So uh, Finland and Norway have really successful transition rates, whereas other areas in Italy and Spain struggle a little bit more. So it's kind of, if we can pull out what are the, the best features of those, are they reflected in Australia, in Australia's labour market programs? If not, would they be suitable? And if they are, how can we implement them at scale? How many resources do we need funnel into these upskilling and retraining processes? This is what I'm modelling at the moment, so I don't have an answer. <laughs> but that, I guess, is the overarching issue, just yeah. in terms of meeting these, meeting the demands and helping these people relocate into other industries yeah. or upskill themselves. Mm. People who have potentially worked in one industry and acquired like university knowledge around something of which yeah. only to then retrain into something else. Yeah. If you take a broad view of technology history and the history of human innovation, technology has been very beneficial in the long run, but over the short run there's been sort of a lot of short-term pain. And I think that that is the case here again. And so we're looking out to the next few decades where there's going to be huge transitions. And so as a result of that, there's going to be a lot of potentially a lot of people that lose their jobs and have to sort of change industries. One question I wanted to ask in terms of if we're jumping back to this idea of policy and or AI informing policy and mm. what exactly that might look like, how do you then inform policy as to make sure we don't experience such drastic economic or income inequality? So uh, governance is just such a huge problem and it's a, it's a big problem for not only artificial intelligence but then for also any major world issue that transcends national borders, so global warming comes to mind, and are the institutions that we have in place at the moment adequate to deal with that? So the closest thing that we have to a world government is the UN. How effective is the UN in governing the growth of artificial intelligence? Reality is probably not that effective. There are sort of soft forms of pressure that are nudging that can occur at the UN level but majority of the power still exists within state borders. So public policy, therefore, needs to sort of happen at the domestic level. What are the nudges? Well, I mean, they're like an organising group when it comes to this. So they play a very key role in terms of Security Council. But with emerging technologies, they bring people together in order to try and come to resolutions and to have a consistency of policy. So they play, it's still an important role, but it's not necessarily um, something that uh, enforces domestic public policy. If you're, from your research background, looking at, you know, your idealistic policy framework when it comes to AI, something that we could potentially implement domestically, what things does it need to take into account, considering that AI is such a multifaceted construct in of itself? Mm but to inform that it's used in the right way or that it's steering us in the, in the appropriate direction, what might this framework need include? Uh, so, I mean, speaking at, at a broad governance and public policy level is, is super difficult because it's kind of like, what's the issue? I think first and foremost, economic policy in regards to AI needs to both incentivize and nurture its growth, but at the same time ensure that it doesn't create a more unequal society. So what that means is you have you still want to have competitive marketplaces, um, but then you also don't want to have concentration of power. So it's kind of you. Is it you, counterintuitive? You, it is. It's kind of it's like this 
crucial balance. And that's the key word that always comes up with policy with regards to AI, because it's like, we don't want to put the blanket over the fire here with this thing, because it's like potentially the most powerful technology that we've ever created. You know, technology history has sort of shown its potential to improve productivity and as a result, quality of life through electrification, the internal combustion engine and and the steam engine. As a result of these technologies, productivity has has increased and then per capita income has increased and quality of life. People have been lifted from the sort of depths of poverty as a direct result of technology. And so to to say that we should jeopardise AI and then as a result jeopardise the growth that it will provide At the same time, we don't want to have runaway concentration of power and wealth as a result of AI. Um, And so the it's like I can't just point to and go, okay, well, it's just this lever, but it's like it's a whole host of economic policy measures and monetary policy areas that like need to take into account this. So it creates this really complex mud map to really look at and so isolating AI policy down. Is super difficult, and you just need to go into the granular level, and that's so. That I mean, that's why I'm focusing on a really, really specific part of labour market policy. And I guess it'd be better to model it before, well, as opposed to not model, and then end up in a circumstance of which AI runs rampant, and we haven't had any pre. <laughs> yeah. You need a plan. <laughs> yeah, some sort of plan. Yeah. Nick Dawson, PhD student in the Faculty of Engineering and Information Technology at the University of Technology, Sydney. Thanks for listening to the show. This episode was made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology, Sydney, and is broadcast nationally across the community radio network. This show is recorded at the 2SCR studios in Sydney, which sit on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation. We both have websites. Just jump on 2SCR.com forward slash think sustainability or 2SCR.com slash think digital futures. You can also find both of us in your podcast app or on iTunes. Don't forget to rate and review us. You'll be supporting independent journalism if you do. When you do. Do it. Thanks to both Nick Dawson and Nick Davis for being part of this episode. I'm Shane Anderson. I'm Jake Morecambe.